and turn to 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 5 to 7, and talking about humility this morning. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 7. Peter writes, Young men, in the same way be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let's pray again. Father, what great words of comfort and strength those are, that you are a God who understands our needs, who cares for us, and who lifts us up. And Father, I pray that today you would minister to all of us who are here this morning, whatever needs or burdens or concerns we may have, I pray that this word would be a good one that would encourage our hearts and lift us up today. Amen. One of the qualities that God wants to build into our life is humility. Humility, this absence of pride, this willingness to put others first in our life and not make life all about me you know, where we have this big ego or self-centeredness. He wants to remove that, that we would be humble and teachable in his sight. And he can do that in a variety of ways, and usually he uses people and circumstances to humble us. Things like this. We're after a worship service one morning, an elderly woman stopped by and spoke to the pastor who had spoken that day. And this pastor had only been in the church just a few months, and she came by and she said, Pastor, I just want to let you know that I'm a little bit hard of hearing, and so I don't always hear what's said in the message, but I still come every week to get my plate filled. And the pastor, in comforting her, said, you know, well, what a blessing that is that you're coming here to be fed, you know, and to just hear. And he said, maybe you haven't missed too much. And she said, yeah, that's what they tell me. <laughs> Or in a similar situation, there was a pastor who announced to his church that he was going to be leaving. And there were tears and there were a lot of kind words that were said. And then after the service, one woman expressed her sadness at his leaving. And the pastor tried to console her by saying, oh, don't feel bad. I'm sure that the superintendent will find a much better replacement. She said, yeah, that's what they said the last time. <laughs> Ouch. Now, maybe you've had some experiences like that, too, where words came out and they were a little bit humbling in what was said, or maybe you've been on the end where you've said something and realized, oh boy, I shouldn't have quite said it that way. God can use people and circumstances to humble us, and often he does. Today, we're going to talk about humility, and although it's something we value, uh, it's not usually something that we are quick to pray for. It's a little bit like praying for patience, you know. Not too many people want to pray, Lord, make me patient, because you know you're going to end up in traffic in a jam or something or take the wrong line in the uh, checkout at a store or things like that that make you wait. And humility can be a little bit like that too. It's hard to pray, Lord, make me humble because we're a little fearful of what might happen. And yet humility is so important in the church and in our life. Paul wrote about it to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
But in humility, consider others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're to have this heart, this attitude, where it's not all about me. We're to look out for the interests of those around us and their well-being, their good, and to put others first in our life. And Peter is stressing that importance here in this passage. Humility is this absence of pride. Humility, according to Romans 12, is having a right estimation of ourselves, not thinking too highly, not too lowly. It's not beating yourself up. But it's having a right estimation of who you are and the gifts that God has given to you. Well, what I was thinking about as I came to this passage was, what does humility look like? You can give it a definition, but what does humility look like in practice? And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Number one, a humble person is teachable. A humble person is teachable. In verse 5, Peter was instructing the young men in the church to be submissive to those who are older. Now, he's just finished talking about the role of the elders in the church and their leadership responsibility and how they are to be under shepherds to the chief shepherd. You know, this is Jesus' church, and so those that are called to be elders, it's not their church, it's God's church, and we need to look to Jesus as our example and our leader. He's the one who guides us in what we do, and so we're to have a spirit of humility toward Jesus. And now he's saying to these young men in the congregation, I want you to look to your leaders and be submissive to them. Submission implies the idea of being respectful or being obedient to them. And we've seen this word submissive before. I mean, Peter's been talking about this all the way through his letter. He said that as Christians, we are to be submissive to the government. We are, as workers, to be submissive to our boss or our employer. As uh, members of the body of Christ in our families, uh, wives are to be submissive to husbands, children to parents, and then within the church, we are supposed to be submissive to those who are in leadership over us in the church for our good. And it implies this idea that we will be both respectful and obedient. Now, as we saw in this, there are also limits. God comes first. If those in authority over us were to ask us to do something contrary to God's word, we must obey God rather than men. God comes first. But in these situations where our leaders are following the Lord and they are there to instruct us, then we are to be teachable. We're to learn from those that God has placed around us in our life. We're to uh, consider what their faith is like and we're to follow their example. It's not just being respectful that Peter is talking about here. Peter is encouraging these young men to be teachable, to listen and learn, follow their example, and imitate their faith. And so I think about these qualities of humility, being humble and teachable. Those two things go hand in hand, and they are great qualities to have, not just in church, but also in the workplace, in school, in our relationships with others around us. Now this week, I finished reading a book by Mark Rosen, one of the local sports broadcasters. He's on CCO television, and I'm sure many of you know who he is. And Mark Rosen wrote a book called The Best Seat in the House. 
And Mark's just a little bit older than me, but it was really fun to read it. If you are a Minnesota sports fan, you know, and he's going through all of these athletes through the years that he had the opportunity to interview and work with, and those that he really liked and respected, and those that were sometimes just jerks or mean and difficult to work with. You know, he kind of tells the stories about all of it. But what interested me in this book was He's been at WCCO for over 40 years now, same station. And that's kind of unheard of in journalism or sports these days, where you could start in the same market and finish there. People move around a lot. And how did that happen for him? Well, Mark had a neighbor, Phil Jones, who worked at CCO as a reporter. And when Mark was a high school student, this is back in the 60s, he wanted to be a sports reporter, and he kept kind of bugging his neighbor, Phil, and asking, could I, could I come down with you sometime to the station just to watch? Just to watch and to see what goes on there. And so Phil set it up where uh, Mark could meet Hal Scott, the sports announcer at that time, and, and just kind of follow him around or watch what happened on a Saturday. So Mark goes down Saturday morning. He's there eager, you know, excited about this. Hal Scott doesn't show up. <laughs> Mark meets a couple other people. They were gracious, kind of took him under the wing, and then Hal came later, you know, shortly before he was going to go on the air. But he said, here I am. I'm this tall, he's six foot six inches, gangly kid with a Beatles haircut. This is 1968, and oversized glasses, and I'm hanging around the newsroom, and I'm sure people were wondering, hey, what's this kid doing here? Because in those days, there were no internships. Uh, and what he was asking to do was really kind of unheard of, to come down there and just hang out at the newsroom. But he got a taste of it, and he didn't want to let that go. And he kept coming back. He came back on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and kept coming back, and they let him do that. And he said, I was there to observe, to listen, to learn, and to stay out of the way. And then as he was given responsibilities, I mean, he was just available. He said, I'll do whatever you want me to do to help out. And he worked hard, and he demonstrated a respectfulness and honesty, integrity, a willingness to work. He was somebody who was teachable, and others saw that, took him under their wing, and that's how he began to grow both as a person and a broadcaster. And I thought, you know, that's really what discipleship is like in the church, too. That there are opportunities all of us have to grow, and there are godly Christians in our church that you can learn from. And when those relationships are established and you're there, whether it's in a Bible study or a classroom or whether it's working together in a ministry, there are things that we learn from one another. How they treat people how they uh, handle difficulty or adversity in their life, how people pray, their faith, the steps of faith that they take and the risks that they are taking for the kingdom or how they share their faith. I mean, we learn by working together and watching one another, and that's what Peter is instructing those who are young to do, to be submissive, to be obedient, to be teachable and learn from those who are older. In Hebrews 13, 7, the scripture says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So a humble person is teachable. Secondly, a humble person has a servant heart. 
It is not just young men or young women who are to be humble and teachable. There's a word here for all of us. And so in the second half of verse 5, he says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of us are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Now that phrase, to clothe yourselves with humility, literally means this. It means put on humility like an apron. Put on humility like an apron, like a servant. Now where do you think Peter learned that? And I would say he learned that from Jesus. Do you remember the story in the upper room where Jesus had told the disciples to go ahead and he wanted to celebrate the Passover with them one last time? And so he told them to go on ahead and prepare this room and get everything ready for the Passover. So they've got the, you know, the food that's there, they've got the plates, they've got everything set out you know, for that. And when they come that night to celebrate the Passover, there's one thing that's missing. There's no servant there to wash their feet, to wash their feet when they would come into this home. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, hey, Peter, you forgot something here. You know, I think you ought to go over there, take that basin and towel and go around and wash everybody's feet. No, Jesus himself gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, lays it aside, puts on a towel, picks up the base and fills it with water, and he goes around, and he begins to wash each of the disciples' feet. Now, that was something that uh, ordinary Jews would consider kind of humiliating. That was beneath them to do. That wasn't something that you were to do. That was something that a servant would do. And Jesus went around. That's why Peter, when he came to Peter, Peter objected and said, No, Lord, you know, you're not supposed to be doing this. And Jesus said to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter let him wash his feet. And when he was done, Jesus got up and he asked them, do you understand what I have done for you? And you can put that passage up from John 13. He said, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He set them an example. It wasn't all about foot washing. It was about being a servant. And using your gifts to serve others, seeing others is more important than yourself, seeing how God could use you. And he said, you will be blessed if you do these things. It's not just knowing them in our head that, oh yeah, I should have a servant heart. It's actually getting in there to use your gifts and serve. Jesus showed us what humility looks like. You know, I think about those who were involved in our Awana ministry and the Sparks in particular this week and the opportunity to see those kids come to know Christ. I mean, what a great joy that is. 
And I know that there are times, you go through a long winter like we've had, and there are Wednesday nights when it's cold and it's dark outside and you're tired, you've been working all day, and you, you know, you come and you go, oh man, is it Wednesday again? <laughs> Wasn't it just Wednesday? You know, and how those things can cycle around and you feel like that. But you do it. You come because you've made a commitment to serve. And you're there with the kids and you love them and you're sharing the good news with them or you're teaching them about Christ and you're encouraging them. And I know that there are nights when that is just, it, it may feel like more of a sacrifice or harder to do that night because you're tired. But you're faithful and you continue to do that. And what happens? There comes a night when the gospel is shared clearly and kids respond and come to know Christ and you realize that's what this is all about. It's not about me. It's about helping others to know Jesus too. And if I can love them and I can point them to Christ and God can use me in some fashion to do that, what a great joy that is. That's what all of ministry is about. It's not about us. It's about helping others and serving and being part of what God is doing in our world. And why is this important? Well, Peter quotes Proverbs 4, verse 34, and he quotes that statement that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Now look at that statement, and let me ask you this. Which side of that equation would you like to be on? You know, when you think about God and his awesomeness and power being opposed to those who are proud or arrogant, I'd rather be on the side of those who humble themselves before the Lord and rely upon God's grace and the strength that he gives. We see that taught throughout the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 2 says, the proud and the arrogant will be humbled in that final day. We see in Isaiah 57 that God dwells with the contrite and lowly. In Psalm 68 it says, he's a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. And here, Peter says, it is those who humble themselves who will be exalted in the final day. A few years ago, there was a woman named Emma Daniel Gray who died June 8, 2009. She was 95 years old at the time she passed away, and there was a story about her in the Washington Post because for 24 years, she was the woman who cleaned the office of the President of the United States. From 1955 to 1979, through those administrations from Eisenhower to Jimmy Carter, she was the woman who cleaned the Oval Office. Can you imagine that? And there she was, and uh, she, her official title, she was called a charwoman. I had never heard that name, charwoman, so I looked it up. In English, it's a char lady, they call them, but basically it comes from the word chores. It's a woman who does the chores around the house. She was a cleaning lady. But what made this story even more interesting was that Mrs. Gray was a devout Christian. And she would stand and pray over the president's chair each time she dusted it. Cleaning supplies, one hand, you know, and she's doing that and she's standing. And she's praying for the president. She'd pray for blessings, for wisdom, for safety, for God to be at work in their heart. And reflecting on the way she lived, her pastor said that she saw life through the eyes of promise. Promise. 
She said you can always look around and find reasons to be unhappy, but she couldn't be around her and not know what she believed. She trusted in God. She considered her work a privilege. She did it well in terms of going about her responsibilities, and she prayed faithfully for the president every time she was in that Oval Office. You know, I look at that and I wonder when the final day comes and the stories are told of how many people there will be just like Emma who have this kind of a servant heart and who behind the scenes the world may consider as kind of lesser important, but who really were significant in what they did because they were faithful and obedient and served God and they prayed. A humble person is prayerful. That's the third thing I see in this passage. And we see it in verse 7. When Peter said that we are to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. A humble person is prayerful because they realize that they are totally dependent upon God. I mean, and they, they just come before the Lord. They understand that, that for everything we are dependent upon God and his grace. And so Peter instructs us to cast all of our cares upon him, all of our anxiety, all of the things that we worry about, the things that wake us up at night or keep us from falling asleep, all those things that we are concerned about, we are to bring and place them upon God. And why are we to do that? Because God cares for us. God is not indifferent to our suffering. And think of how that must have blessed the people that Peter was writing to in that day, just like it blesses us. I mean, here they were in uncertain times, Roman era, persecution, uh, suspicion by neighbors, or people are wondering, what is this group called the way? Who are these Christ followers? And what is this all about? And they are suffering. And Peter is saying to them, bring your anxiety to the Lord. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you you. That's the same thing that we are to do. God knows our trials. He knows what you are going through. He understands your fear. He understands your pain. He understands your suffering, and he cares for you. You know, a couple years ago, and I, I see Jeff over here, and I asked if this is okay to share this story, but Jeff was suffering from a pancreatitis attack, and the pain was just extreme. And it was really hard for him. And he was down in the hospital, and Don, a friend, called me uh, that Sunday afternoon after church and shared what was going on, and Don asked if the elders could pray for Jeff that day. And so I called Chuck Stomberg, who's one of our elders and who was on the youth ministry team at that time, and I said, you know, Chuck, are you available? Can we go down and, and uh, see Jeff and just pray for him today? And we went down there to the hospital and, you know, met with Jeff and Allison and heard what was going on and just saw the pain that Jeff was in. And we took the James 5 passage that instructs us as elders to pray. And we just laid our hands on him and we prayed for him. And ask God to do what only he could do to bring relief from the suffering, to bring healing to his body, and to change what was going on right there. And that time of prayer, you know, and I say this to people when we pray, you know, the power's not in us, you know that. The power's in the Lord. 
And when we take a passage like James 5 that instructs the elders to pray, we're just being obedient to what God asks us to do. And we place things in his hands. And God may heal instantly. He may heal over time. He may give grace to endure. He may give the strength to persevere. I mean, we put that in God's hands, but he wants us to ask. And we pray what's on our heart, and we ask for healing, and we ask for relief, and we ask for comfort. And that day, those prayers were really a turning point for Jeff in what was going on. And God, in his grace, heard our prayers and began to work and change that situation. And we praise God for that and for what he did. And we as elders, we have frequently prayed with people in our church when they are going through difficult times, and we will continue to do that. Why do we do it? Because the scripture says, like in Psalm 55, 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. I have used that verse many times in my own life. Put it on an index card. Put it in front of me as something to just remember and pray when I'm going through a difficult time or challenges. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. You know, I look at that verse as you do, and I know there are times when you may read, be anxious, don't be anxious about anything, and you go, really, Paul? Really? Don't be anxious about anything. We're kind of prone to worry, aren't we? There are times when things come up and there are legitimate needs and concerns that we have in our life. But what he's saying is what we're to do with those needs is to not fret about them, but bring them to God in prayer. And how do we know that we're doing that? I think the way that we know that we are bringing those to God and leaving them at his feet is when we experience that peace of God that transcends all understanding. That peace of God that says, okay, I know that this is in God's hands. There's nothing more I can do about it. I've given it to the Lord, and I am trusting him to work, and that peace begins to flood our heart. A peace that you can't explain to somebody who's never experienced that. Those of you that are believers, we understand what that peace is like when God takes control, and you just know it's in his hands, and you feel that. That's what we want. We come before him in prayer. God responds to the cries of his people. He hears our prayer. Alfred Lord Tennyson once said that more things have been wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. God works more often in response to our prayers than this world will ever know or understand. You know, in the messages here uh, in this series, I've shared a few stories of what has gone on in places like Russia, China, other parts of the world where believers have been suffering. Here's another story that's quite interesting in that regard. In 1949, George Roy and Elizabeth Wood, an American missionary couple, were serving in northwest China in the area near Tibet. And they were forced to leave that area in 1949. A local Leader, a man named Pastor Mung, took over this church of some 200 people at that time. 
The Woods returned to America, and by 1985, both of them had passed away without ever knowing what had happened to the church that they helped to start. In 1988, the Woods' son George returned to China, met with Pastor Mong and his wife, who were now in their 80s. And he told them that for 28 years, the communists had done their best to extinguish the church. Pastor Mung wasn't allowed to preach. He spent nine years in prison for his faith. It was illegal to baptize or indoctrinate anyone under age 18. And when the government finally allowed him to reopen the church in 1983, there were only 30 people in attendance, and most of them were older. So George Wood, assuming that the church was kind of on its last leg, said, Pastor Mung, how many believers do you have today? This is 1988, five years later. And Pastor Mung brought out a cardboard roll, and he showed him the names of people that he had baptized. And he went through this list of people who have been baptized. He's kind of flipping this page, and there's like 20 names on a page and then 20 more and 20 more and 20 more and he's going through this and he said, how many believers do you have now? And he said, 1,500 baptized believers. And in disbelief, George Wood asked, how did this happen? And Pastor Monk smiled as he shared his secret for church growth. It wasn't a technique or a program. He simply said that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we prayed a lot. We prayed. You know, what else can you do when those kind of things are against you, when opposition is increasing and so hard? What can you do? You go to the Lord in prayer and you share the gospel as often as you can. And he went on to describe what the Lord had done. By the time Pastor Mung died in 2006 at the age of 96, the number of baptized believers in that church stood at over 15,000. That's pretty significant church growth, isn't it? You know, one of the reasons why God gives grace to the humble is because they've learned to rely on God. They've learned to trust Him. That He is Lord and I am not. That He's the one that I need to follow and obey. And when we humble ourselves, we are teachable, and God can mold us and shape us and make us more like his son. When we humble ourselves, we're willing to serve God. What is it you want me to do? And God can use us. And we find ourselves doing all sorts of things. And it is those that are willing to serve in those lesser positions, if you will, who learn and who grow, that God gives more and more responsibility. And when we humble ourselves, we look to God in prayer, and he hears us. And when we pray, God works, and all the glory goes to him. A humble servant. That's what God's looking for in each of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that you give and the things that you do through people that are willing to humble themselves before you and to follow your will for their life. And I thank you for the people that are part of this church, for their faithfulness and service and ministry, for their love for you and their prayers for one another. And Father, I pray that you would continue to do that good work that you have begun in all of us so that we might continue to serve you until that day when you call us home. And we will give you all the praise and glory. Amen.